All right. Uh, my name is Robert Lee Swafford. I was born on a side hill cotton farm in western North Carolina. Uh, when I was seven years old, uh, my father moved in his Model T truck to Minnesota. So in uh, early 1941, in February of 1941, uh, our reserves and National Guards were activated for supposedly a two-year training program. And uh, so I went with the National Guard driving the truck to Louisiana. And uh, after spending a year down there in training, why, we went to Fort Dix, New Jersey, where uh, after a few days, why, there was a, uh, a bulletin on the board saying that the Air Corps in those days had changed their requirements for pilot training from a two years college, which I didn't have, to a high school plus an IQ type exam. And uh, a bunch of us went down to take the exam that night and three of us passed. So I became an Air Force cadet. And uh, so after classifications, why I was selected to be the pilot training rather than they selected the groups, they separated the groups between navigators and bombardiers and pilots. What the criteria they made, used, I don't really know. Maybe uh, the pilot was, uh, couldn't really be outstanding in the other two fields, so they gave him the job. But anyway, uh, I went through uh, flight training and uh, I first flew the biplane, the steerman, and uh, had a young fellow as an instructor. And uh, it was it was interesting because up to that point, I had never been then, been within a mile of an airplane until I climbed in the back seat of this this trainer. And, and how old uh, were you then, sorry? Huh? At this time, how old were you? I was uh, just 18. And uh, nearly 19 at this point. And uh, so then we went to basic, which is a single engine uh, train. And then a primary was a single engine, a little bigger horsepower, 650 horsepower, and a, and a real airplane. And uh, I had a very interesting instructor. He was an English pilot officer. And uh, we did, there was nothing that you could do in any airplane that we didn't do. And uh, um, we were, my first time I ever did a barrel roll, which is a, a corkscrew-like thing through the air, was in a four-plane formation. And uh, I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I mean we, we were either blacked out at 10,000 feet chasing each other around, or we were down between the pine trees 10 feet off the ground. And uh, that was, uh, I thought that was great fun. But uh, so then when I graduated, I expected to get a fighter to go ahead and do fighter training. Well, when I got to my assigned base, it was a B-25, and I checked out in the 25, flew that for about three months. Then I was sent to a B-17 school. I checked out there, and then my next assignment was to a B-24. And I completed 24 and got a crew and uh, picked up an airplane at Lincoln, Nebraska and they told me to take it to West Palm Beach, Florida. And from there, I went through to, to England by way of South America and Africa. And uh, after we uh, arrived in England, 
We were into a kind of a, a pool of people. We, we, weren't go, we didn't go directly to a squatter, but we were there for a week or so, something like that. And then we, I was assigned to the 445th Bomb Group at Tiverdam, just about 15 miles south of Norwich. And uh, we were walked into this big room and we were standing around wondering what next to happen. And a nice looking young man came up, not a young man, he's older than I was considerably, but Major Fleming, and he asked me if I'd be in his squadron. So that's how it came, I 700 squadron, the 445th Bomb Group. And uh, I moved into a Quonset hut with uh, another captain, a first pilot named Clymer, who later on uh, was got shot down. But uh, we, uh, he was a very interesting person. He was one of the original group that came over, and he, had a, he was a promoter. And he had arranged for the, a local farmer to, for his wife to do our cleaning, and uh, uh, also bought, traded for eggs. And so we often had fresh eggs in, the, in our Quonset hut. But he also made a deal with a local cider mill that uh, produced hard cider, and about every two weeks he'd deliver a three-gallon keg of hard cider in the weeds behind the Quonset hut, and which leads to a, another problem later on. But uh, my first mission was I went as co-pilot for climate, and then the, the first pilots would take one trip with someone else, and then they could take their own crew. So, uh, but uh, it was to Brunswick, I think, and uh, the only thing notable about it was that uh, I, that was the first time I had been up there, and we climbed up through a cloud deck, and I was appalled and amazed at the number of airplanes. Just not single airplanes, but swarms of them everywhere you look, everywhere you look, were swarms of airplanes, and uh, then they'd get the you see them moving around and they get in line. It took about two hours, really, for the whole 8th Air Force to get organized in formations and get in line and then leave England. So uh, we would individual um, homing beacons that we would assemble into 36 airplane formations. And then we'd leave that at a given time to go to another beacon to fall in line with the whole Eighth Air Force. You had a time like a clock, you had to be there. And that's the way, to, and then we'd depart England for Germany, usually usually straight east across the North Sea, or once in a while we'd go to France or sometimes Northern Germany. And uh, most times we were at altitudes before we left. And there was a few times if you were going to northern Germany or south, you might climb en route, but mostly we were at altitude. And it was cold. Oh, Jesus, it was cold. Uh, our free air temperature in the cockpit would read to 65 below at uh, Fahrenheit. And I've seen the needle sitting on a peg. So it, it was cold. But uh, we were well equipped with uh, heating, heated suits and sheepskin outfit. The gloves we had were a silk glove 
and then the, the heated glove, and then on top of that, a three-finger gauntlet of, of sheepskin. And uh, it may seem rather clumsy, but uh, it was adequate for flying the airplane. And uh, so uh, on a f my fourth mission, uh, that's the first time I got into any kind of trouble because uh, we were bombing some suburb of Berlin and uh, just after the bomb dropped, why the formation made a couple turns which threw me out. I was not good enough to stay in position so I was lagging behind and four 109s attacked us. And the first uh, pass, they uh, hit us with two 20 millimeter shells, uh, one in the middle of the center of the tail turret, which uh, the shock and all that shoved the gunner back inside the airplane. And he said afterwards why well, he, he just thought he was dead, and he, but he fell around and arms and legs were all okay. So he climbed back into the turret again, but it had blown the glass and everything out the back. And he lost uh, elevation of his guns, but the turrets would still turn. So when uh, the gunners, the airplanes came back again, why he shot at them, even though he knew he couldn't hit them, but he thought maybe the muzzle flashes would give him something to think about. But uh, the first pass, there was one shell in the turret and one uh, right behind the number three or right inboard engine. And uh, that engine quit instantly, and I feathered it. And then uh, the uh, the other engine ran for about a minute before it uh, it quit. It just died off. I think what had happened is that it had cut the throttle cable, and uh, I think it went back to zero thrust. So I had to feather that. Well, I was 600 miles from England on two engines on one side. And uh, there are some authors, uh, Stephen Ambrose, who writes about B-24s. He had the opinion that the airplane wouldn't fly. <laughs> it, it did, but it wouldn't fly very well. But uh, of course the formation left me and I was by myself. And uh, we put maximum power in the other two engines and whatever I got out of, I got out of it. So uh, it, the airplane was settling, I just had to maintain the speed. And finally it started to hold its altitude at 3,500 feet. And uh, then I had the decisions of what to do. I thought about going to Sweden, which wasn't terribly far away. I could go to uh, uh, Switzerland or I could go, do, I don't know what else. So I decided to Rather than do anything different, I'd just take the regular route home, thinking that I might have fighter protection along with me or, or some other airplanes. And uh, I did uh, catch up. We were 3,500 feet, and we were just on top of a cloud layer, which gave us some protection. But uh, later on, it was clear below us, and you felt awfully naked. You were so close to be, you know, you just felt like anybody else see us and come up and finish the job. But uh, we were keeping track of our fuel. I had the, the engineer transfer all the fuel from the right side of the airplane to the left side. 
and so we'd have as much as possible in the, the tanks. And uh, but uh, we kept track of the fuel consumption, even though we were fully maximum power. And uh, so I had to make a decision when I got to the coast at, over the Zyder Z. Uh, we computed finally that uh, we had enough fuel to cross the 120 miles of the North Sea in February, which is an unlivable option of going into the water. But uh, we figured out we had enough for eight minutes. We could get across the 120 miles and have eight minutes of fuel. And uh, so uh, when the navigator said we were over the coast, well, there was still a cloud deck below us. So I pushed it down through the clouds and broke out at about 700 feet above a airport. And I circled the airport. And uh, then I made a serious mistake. Instead of just putting it on the ground, uh, the airplane had been flying. I hated to, to destroy it. So I tried to hang, try to crank the gear down. And that took me about two miles. And uh, then the, I was about a mile from touchdown with the gear only partially down. And the other engine quit. So I was down on one. So there's no option except landing. So I, I pushed it down through some treetops into a, a little wheat field. And uh, we were flying, sliding through the mud at Sweetfield, and there was a ditch across the field, and we went across the ditch, which then the nose dug in. But uh, I was aiming for a tree on the farther side of the field because I thought that would help stop us so that we wouldn't run into the hedgerows, which are just like concrete. It worked out fine. And uh, they uh, hit, the, hit the tree and broke the wing off. But uh, I started to scramble out as quickly as I could. Uh, I noticed the co-pilot had left a couple switches on, and I reached over and turned those off, and I went through the upper hatch. I looked out, and my whole crew was about 50 yards away, standing <laughs> in the bus. They said, we're all here. Some of them were routine. There are many times when you'd fly a whole mission, you wouldn't see a fighter. Then other again, or an aircraft, sometimes a aircraft aircraft fire was accurate and close to you, it would explode and the, the, the fuselage would rattle. Not from the not from shrapnel, shrapnel actually just from the pressure. And you'd think, oh my God, I got a million holes in it. But uh, we, uh, we didn't. Uh, we had uh, uh, we had the flak suits, uh, a little vest type thing. And we in the cockpit didn't could the vest didn't do you any good, so you take that off and put it underneath your seat cushion. <laughs> and, uh, but one day the armament officer came by and he said, uh, "I had to go raid your airplane." And I said, "What? Uh, what's the problem?" He said, "Well, he said we're running short of flak vests." And uh, he said, "We found about 25 in your airplane." <laughs> I said, "My gutters had been stealing them." And in the back, they'd lay them down on the floor like a big mat and stand on that. <laughs> so they took all our black vests. I just laughed at the guys. You know, I said, I said, once before, when we first got there, they were supposed to be issued a metal helmet, like a you know, artillery banner, a service banner, and the supply people wouldn't wouldn't give them any. He said, we don't have any. 
So uh, I said, well, I'll go see what I can do. So I went down and in the tent, I could see through a door, a big pile of stuff that the, they had recovered from people who got shot down. I said, well, I think there's a helmet in there. So I walked down in and he said, well, I can't give you that stuff. He said, I haven't recorded it yet. And I said, well, it don't matter. I said, I went on and picked the helmets off. He gave them to the guys. I said, okay, the next time you need something, just get it. I said, don't worry about procedures, just get it. So that's why I ended up with 20 black suits in the airplane. I told the arm of an officer, I said, well, I really thought the airplane was a little heavy on the controls, but <laughs> and uh, but uh, the only other mission that I had any kind of a near miss as far as that we were going in on a target, and the, our, there was a four-gun battery. It was working on the group ahead of us, and they knocked an airplane out of that sky, and then. As we came along, they, they fired at us. And the first four bursts was right out my window, about 150 feet or so out there. But they had our altitude dead. And the next shot was about 25 seconds later. He moved over half the distance to the formation. And uh, the, I, I happened to be flying a left wing at this particular mission. So I told myself, well, the next shot's gonna be right here because they had our speed and everything cold. So I just slid it over there, about where the old bursts were. I just slid it over there and stopped, and then the next burst came. The airplane, that was about as far as from either that sign above me, just that's the position we flew. He got two hits. One was in the left wing that cut the wing in half, and another shell cut the fuselage about the windows, and then he flipped over and went out of my sight. But. <laughs> Then the formation slid out, started on the bomb run, so then I had to go back in formation anyway. And I slid back over, and I, fortunately, I guess the gunners picked up the formation behind us. But uh, I told the guys that night, I said, well, I saved your butt one more time. <laughs> and, uh, How many missions just it? something told me, you know, the next shot's going to be right here. And it worked out that way. So uh, later, after the war, uh, my brother ran into uh, my bombardier, and uh, so he, he decided who was who, you know. And uh, he was telling my brother, I said, you know, uh, Lee was considered a lucky pilot. And he said, when other people tried to get in my formation, because half of my tour I flew as lead pilot, leading a 12-plane formation. And I, I don't know if that was true or not, because I never heard of it. But, uh, Things did work out that way. Okay, well, uh, D-Day was coming along, and uh, I expected to be called for the morning mission, but as it turned out, they didn't call me. But they, they did call me, and, and I was assigned a, a formation-sized mission for about mid-morning of D-Day. And uh, so I led the four, 12 airplanes uh, on D-Day, and it was, by this time, the weather had cleared somewhat, and our altitude was about uh, 14,000 or something. It wasn't terribly high, but you could see all the way from England to France. Most fantastic sight you could possibly imagine. I swear you could walk 
all the way to stepping on boats. There are the wakes, the two channels of wakes going across. And then right offshore was the biggest line of big boats. We'd never seen anything like that. About, oh, maybe half a mile offshore. All these big boats shooting into the shore. And uh, my target for that morning was at, the, at just on the north edge of the city of Cannes is uh, the Orne River and the canal. And there's one bridge, big concrete bridge that, that spanned the canal and the, and the river. And that was my target. And so we bombed that. And later on, uh, I was reading uh, the book, Cornelius Ryan's book on the longest day. And he was talking about the response of the ta uh, German tanks to the attack. And they said that they had discovered there was an eight mile gap between the Canadian and the British landing. So they wanted to get their tanks up there and they could just roll up the beach. And, uh, but they couldn't get there because the roads were blocked. And uh, they had to go back out of town of Can and go around to the west and circle around, and by the time they did that, uh, three hours or something, that's, that's in his book, um, the British had landed anti-tank guns and stopped them. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I like to think that because I destroyed the bridges, I gave them another three hours so that they could stop them. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I feel good about it. So, so I finished my uh, tour of 30 uh, trips, and uh, uh, they gave me the choice of flying a war weary back to the States or coming back by boat. And then I, I found out, I asked what, kind, what boat was it, and they said, it's the Queen Elizabeth. So I said, I'll take Queen Elizabeth. So I had a, we come back in style. That was great.